Uh, John chapter 12. I'm going to read a fairly long portion, starting in verse 12. I'll read down to verse 33. Here's the word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Well, this morning marks the beginning of what we call Holy Week, and that's really just a liturgical designation that we put on this week. Everything that happens this week is really essential for all of the life of a Christian. Nothing that's relegated to the idea or this this seven-day period between Sunday, Palm Sunday, and next Sunday as Easter ought to be relegated to this aspect of a calendar. For the Christian alone, this should be what informs our entire faith and the life of faith. So, as I say that, today is a holy day, is it not? The idea that we remember the day that Christ enters into Jerusalem, we call it Palm Sunday, often it's also called the triumphal entry, is a holy day. All the Gospels in the New Testament, the four Gospels, not just the synoptics, but all four of them, treat at least a portion of this last week in testimony of the last week of Christ's life, and all of them regard and have to, something to say of the triumphal entry of Christ. Now, the last four week, the last uh, week of Christ's life make up percentage-wise 
uh, a vast majority of the entire life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, and, and that shows the important nature of this last week of Jesus' life. And that is important for us to understand as we come to Palm Sunday. Therefore, as I say, this is the Holy Week, and that's a liturgical church time that the, the church has set aside for us to remember this. I don't want us to be discouraged to not set aside this week. When we set aside this week, we are in, a sense, in essence saying the last week of Jesus' life is of utmost importance for the church. And it informs our faith with much importance. Palm Sunday as we think of it as such, or the triumphal entry, I'll refer to it as that this morning, has much to do with the entire story of redemption that we see from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. And by that I mean from the earliest pages of Job, which was the first historical book written, or the earliest pages of Genesis, which, was go, which goes obviously further back than Job does, all the way to the book of Revelation, this event, Palm Sunday, has to do with the entirety of that revelation. When we talk about the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ in coming into Jerusalem in this very humble way, we need to have very grand ideas in our minds that scripture conveys to us as believers. Do you ever ask yourself, what does Jesus triumph over when he comes into Jerusalem? What does he triumph over? Well, one of the things that he triumphs over is our sin, the guilt of our sin. And I preached about that with regards to his triumphal entry. But there's another problem that we come to when we come to the very earliest pages of Scripture. Genesis 3.15, there's, there's a promise that also announces a very big problem. There's enmity between the serpent, who is really Satan, and a woman. And there is a pronouncement, a promise given there that this serpent will bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman. But that offspring will bruise or crush, often there's a debate, how should we talk about that, will bruise, the, the idea there is a death blow to the serpent, and that's the very earliest ideas of, of any conflict in Scripture that's the earliest word about it. And then you see Job, which, as I said, that earliest book that was written. And Job, the very basis of Job is at the beginning chapters, you have Satan. And we always ask ourselves, what is he doing there? But he stands as one of the sons of God, as the sons of God are, are standing before God. This very mystical, this very mysterious picture unfolds. And Satan is one of them. And he stands there as sort of an accuser. And he's sort of saying to God, this Job who is your servant, he doesn't serve you for nothing. Look how easy you've made his life. And if I take all that away, he's not going to follow you. And we know how that story goes. But you see this strange picture, and it seems to always bring these questions to our mind. What is Satan doing there in heaven? Well, you see a similar picture when you come to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 12, and you see Satan is once again in heaven, and there he's called the accuser of the brethren. 
And I think there's a theological understanding, if we were to take a, a survey of all that the scriptures have to say, that Satan is someone who, prior especially to the coming of Christ, seems to have a position to say before God, has he served you for nothing, Job? Abraham, you know, look at him. He's laughing when you give him a promise, God. And, and when you come to Romans chapter 3 and you realize that God passed over sins which were previously committed, but then we read that Abraham believed God and his faith was accounted to him for righteousness, the question comes to mind is how is God just to over, just pass over sins? You see, God has to be just to be God. And so you see sort of a, a theological picture being uh, displayed before us that prior to Christ's coming, Satan sort of had a role of saying, this person's a sinner, how can you receive him? What, what do you mean Abraham's bosom is a place of, of peace with you? On what basis is this sinner at peace with you, God? And he's an accuser of the brethren. And there's this conflict that is going on such that when we see Jesus born into the world, how many believers are there in God at that time? And if you go back, this is sort of the picture that we see, isn't it? Noah, how many righteous people were there at his time? Not a handful, eight, right? I mean, eight, if you, would, if you see the covenantal nature, Noah and his family are, are in, the, in the ark, eight people. And then after Noah, Abraham is called out of the world of this pagan, multi-deity-worshipping world. One man, Abraham, is called out. Through him, there's a set of promises and a covenant is made. Now it goes to Isaac and Jacob. But you get to them and they're not, they're not beaming examples of godliness, are they? But they have a promise, aren't, don't they? They have a covenant, don't they? And now comes Israel this nation that God redeems for himself and he gives them a covenant at Sinai through Moses and that's a redemptive picture of what's to come. But that, that covenant is not perfect. What was, re, what was a necessary uh, aspect of that covenant was their obedience. Everything that you say, the people say, we will do. And so Hebrews says, that covenant had, there was faults in that covenant because it was in the people to fulfill it. And they couldn't, they couldn't do righteousness. And so what we see of Israel is this picture of darkness developing over and over again, such that by the time we see Christ coming into the world, who's the godly? Again, you sort of see this picture that there was almost with Noah. There, there's very few. There's Simeon, there's Anna. Zechariah has to sort of be slapped around a little bit, made deaf or whatever. I forget what it was, blind, yeah. Hey, Zechariah is, is off put, but, but his wife believes, Elizabeth believes. There's very few. And then Jesus even calls disciples out, and they don't seem to know what is going on. More often than not. Jesus starts to, to tell his disciples, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter says, no, Lord, far be it from you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. 
I mean, we're not looking at, a, at, at anything that looks very revolutionary or very promising at all, are we? And why is that? What is, what is the problem? Well, I, I would suggest to you that when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, and Satan in the third temptation says, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me. I would, I would suggest to you that ha- that has a large and a massive role to play in the, the reign of evil prior to Christ. That when Satan says that of the kingdoms of this world, I don't think he is speaking too much out of turn. Yes, God is sovereign. All things are God's. All things are under his control. But whose hearts in the world were being led by God and whose hearts were being led by the prince of the power of the air? It seems to me that the kings of, kingdoms of this world were beholden to Satan. And he says to Jesus, just bow down and worship me and I'll give them to you. And in fact, we see this in the confusion of the of, of the people of Jerusalem in this day. They're singing all these sorts of praises to Jesus. I, this is nowhere in my notes. I told Kyle I changed everything yesterday. Everything's in, up in the air as to where this sermon goes this morning. I pray that's not totally true. But the people are shouting out, Hosanna! Save us! Save us! And they all think that means Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and set up a temporal kingdom there and destroy Rome. That's what they all think it means. They all think going, being the son of David means he's going to become the king of, of Jerusalem. This, this temporal kingdom is going to be set up and he's going to save us by that means. And seven days later, not even seven days, five days later, that crowd is crying out, crucify him. Boy, we are fickle, aren't we? What is happening that makes this day triumphant? Well, The the gospel writers say that this day is a fulfillment of promises. One particular promise is mentioned. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Do what you're doing on Palm Sunday, crowd gathered. Do what you're doing. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, and humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy is given to a people who at the time had essentially been under bondage by other nations for over 500 years. Boy, they were looking to be set free. We have never, you and I, have never known what it's like to be under a true t- tyrant. We've been close in these last couple years. 
And we, we start complaining. We feel it. It comes up our back, and we don't like to be told no by magistrates. 500 years. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Here's the Messiah. Go to Jerusalem. Set up your kingdom. Deliver us so we can be free. And they're wrong. Before Zechariah said that promise in chapter 9, he said other promises regarding the Messiah. One of them is found, actually, it's very interesting. Zechariah is a book that's full of visions, full of uh, very intricate visions that are hard to determine exactly what's being said. But some of those visions, in fact, every three chapters seems to be an announcement of messianic blessings promise. If you want to turn to Zechariah chapter 3, I want to just read this, and I want to see a problem that Zechariah points to, because at the end of this sermon, I want to point to the solution to the problem. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, I'll read those. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about the symbolism here, Uh, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, is a very interesting symbol because we have here a priest, and yet it it seems like he becomes a priest king in the way that this vision bears out. And, And what it has to say is remarkable. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. That position at the right hand is a position of authority. You need to understand that. Satan is not there just kind of like he shouldn't be there. Satan is the accuser here, and he has some position. He holds some position to accuse, some right to accuse. But now the Lord said to Satan, and here's, here's something very interesting. Joshua standing there, Satan at his right hand, accusing Joshua. It seems like Satan has a right to be there until the Lord speaks. Look Look what he says. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And this is, I do believe, a picture of unrighteousness. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so what we see here as we believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone is we see God's pronouncement of a sinner as justified. God the just is saying, you are justified. You're a sinner, but by my word, I am declaring you righteous, and here these garments that were stained with sin are replaced with holy vestments. Very, very provocative language that demonstrates what we call the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. When we trust in Christ, when we believe on him, God accounts his righteousness as ours. 
He counts us righteous in the righteousness of Christ. But what does he do there? What does he do with the accusation of Satan? You have no more right to accuse Joshua. He takes away Satan's right to accuse. And so we see, if we were to go on in Zechariah, that the end of Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, there is a promise of this person called the branch. Now, the first time the branch is spoken of, it's spoken of in Jeremiah's prophecy. Chapter 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That is an offspring of David is what that means. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And then again, he says in Jeremiah 33, 15, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And then we see in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, this branch is once again promised Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of who? Joshua, the high priest. Now he's a priest and now he has a crown. This is what I'm telling you. He's a priest. He's a king. Listen, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Oh, I wish we had time to go through these things. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between the both. What? The council of peace shall be between the king and the priestly line in one person. And he will be the one who builds the temple. And when we come to Ephesians chapter 2, we see that Jesus is the one who is building the temple of the Lord. Even he is the one who is the chief cornerstone. He's the basis for it. So we see this prophecy of this king, priest, this relative, this offspring of David, and he is going to be the means of justice and righteousness in the land. And these are promises relating to the problem that mankind faces, namely the problem of sin and a problem of an accuser. This promise that we saw here, and the promise that I read back in the beginning of Zechariah chapter 9, what's fulfilled with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, is a promise that began much further back. We've already talked about the promise in the garden, but that seed promise then comes to Abraham. It comes through Abraham to Jacob, Isaac, or Isaac and Jacob, and then now in chapter 49 of Genesis. Verse 10, we see the kingly promise being promised there. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. That is, until Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom. This is what this means. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, don't overlook that, that statement, the obedience of the peoples. Who were the people obedient to prior to Christ's coming? In mass. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Let's see. We've been memorizing this in the morning at our, or in the evening at our house. But we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And that walking was following 
the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is no small promise that we will be obedient to the seed, the seed of promise. That is a paradigm shift. That is life from death. I'm going to preach about that next week, so I'll try to stay away from that a little bit. That's life from death. That's if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation creature. You were children of darkness. Now you are children of light. And on and on and on and on and on. This is a good promise. The obedience of the people is a blessing. How does this come further in the Old Testament? Well, it comes to David, who is in the lineage of Judah, doesn't it? We're, we're all very familiar with the divinic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's the good news that we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? The people who were once in darkness, Isaiah chapter 9, have seen a great light. And here are those people on Palm Sunday seeing Jesus come into Jerusalem in fulfillment of that kingly promise and they're saying hosanna hosanna our savior our salvation has come blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord their salvation is at hand and who is he triumphing over to bring that salvation and this is where we often lose the narrative we lose the narrative of scripture here This is a reference of hope these people have. Save us. Psalm 118, this important Hallel that regards the whole idea of Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. This crowd is, is giving praise to Jesus with their lips, they're reverencing him, even with their actions, laying down cloaks on the ground and palm branches and branches that are cut, signifying that he is to be reverenced. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Everything that is happening is right that's happening. Jesus is coming, and he's coming to triumph. But how does that triumph take place? Well, Jesus tells in a parable, exactly how that triumph would take place. And it all, it it just completely shatters their ideas. And I'm talking about the disciples to the crowd because they all thought they were paving the way for Messiah to go to Jerusalem, to the throne, and just establish your throne there and then we'll be good. But Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, Luke places this right before the triumphal entry narrative for this reason, to correct that wrong view. How would he be triumphant? Well, he says here, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. That's in 1720, Luke 1720. It's not coming in ways that can be observed. That's not coming to a a physical throne in Jerusalem here. 
is what he's saying. In chapter 19, verse 11 of Luke, they suppose, suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And that word appear means to be physically before their eyes, as it were. And there is no question at the same time that Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king God promised his people in Zechariah chapter 9. Both Matthew and John say this is fulfillment of that promise. The question is, who does he defeat and how and where is he enthroned as king? Well, this parable, Jesus demonstrates in it exactly how his king his kingdom would be established. He says in verse 12, Luke 19, a nobleman, he's already a nobleman, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, verse 15, when he returned having received the kingdom. Now notice the sequence of the parable of these words. He's a nobleman, Christ, goes into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself. Then he returns, having received the kingdom. Sometimes this is understood incorrectly. Sometimes this is regarded that Jesus comes to the world to receive a kingdom, goes back to heaven, returns back to heaven with the kingdom. This is what, what Jesus is saying is actually this. He's a nobleman here. He's going someplace to receive a kingdom. He's going to receive the kingdom. How does he do so? How does he receive his kingdom? By going to a throne on Jerus in Jerusalem? By a physical act of sitting himself as making himself king in Jerusalem? No. By destroying Rome? No. We get a hint of how he establishes his kingdom. Matthew 12, 28 and 29. You could also see this in Mark's gospel, chapter 3. But since we're starting to go through Mark, I figure we'll wait till we get there. But Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, listen to this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The power of the kingdom of God is before your eyes. How is that illustrated? in the casting out of demons? Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong men? Then indeed he may plunder his house. 1 John 3.8 says this about Jesus and his coming. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When Satan brings Jesus up to that temple and he shows them the nations of the world, and he says, these are mine. The scriptures are saying, Jesus' kingdom is established by binding him, Satan, the one who has the control. And that was his purpose in coming. Well, how did he do it? Zechariah 12.10, I think it's, we could go through multitudes of scriptures to see how Jesus did it. How did Jesus triumph? How did he bind Satan in this event? 
to establish his own kingdom and to bind Satan as the one who had rule over the kingdoms of this earth. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they pierced, him who they pierced. So he's regarding here the death of Jesus. And this is Jesus. John 19, 37 says this text regards Jesus. Revelation 1, 7 says this text regards Jesus in his sacrifice for sin, sinners. And they shall mourn over him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And then we see the result of this sacrifice in chapter 13 of Zechariah promised. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's what I preached about before. Christ triumphing over sin and our sin debt. But listen to what else he says. And on that day in verse 2 declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And I would submit to you, this is exactly what Jesus triumphs over in his cross. There is no triumphal king unless our enemy, Satan himself, is defeated. John chapter, or Revelation chapter 12, we sing it, well, the hallelujah chorus, you remember that phrase, the kingdom of our God has become, of this world, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and we shall reign forever and ever. Well, how does the kingdoms of this world that did belong to Satan become the kingdom of kingdoms of our God. In John chapter 12, it says, because of the blood of the Lamb. That's how the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. You see, the triumph of Jesus, this humble King, is through the triumph of the humility of His sacrifice. Him going to the cross was the means of him destroying that serpent's head that held us in darkness, that held the whole world in darkness, such that when Jesus says in John chapter 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. And he's speaking to a bunch of Greeks. (laughs) And he's saying to us who are mostly Gentiles here this morning and to the world who has ears to hear, I triumphed over your enemy. I am the king. 
And we don't live that way, do we, Christians? To our own shame. The last two years I've been complaining so much about all the temporal things going wrong in the world. And we sh there is an anxiety that we have about those temporal things. Because I think we expect to see the kingdom of this world as the kingdom of our God now. And when it's not, we should be a bit shaken by that. But should we be shaken to the point where we lose hope? God forbid. This is Christ's kingdom. I'm going to preach next week on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, where it says, All things in heaven and on earth are now under his feet. And we don't think that at all. We don't live with that kind of faith. We think Satan is still ruling things in this world. And in a large portion, those who don't have faith, who have not been redeemed, who do not know that they've been freed by the Lord Jesus Christ when they believe on his name, they still live under the reign and domain of Satan. But he has no power to keep those who Christ has freed in bondage. We are not in his service any longer. And so I want to ask us, this crowd had all these expectations about Jesus. The disciples had all these expectations about Jesus. What is your expectation about Jesus? Is the world too wicked for him to do anything about? You say, well, there's a timeline. You see, there's a timeline. And we're in this part of the timeline, so we, we don't have any hope anymore. And all I see, well, not all I see, for, I'm with you. There's, there's a sense where I'm fighting that urge to say, oh, woe is me. But what do we read in Scripture? We see sin increasing, and we read in Scripture that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we think that he can't save the people that are beset by Satan's blinding their eyes into transgenderism, homosexuality, adultery, unbiblical divorce. All of the things we're so up in arms about, abortion on demand, injustices, wars, Ukraine, Russia, wickedness throughout the world. And we think that God is unable to do anything about it, may we repent of that evil unbelief. He is the triumphal king. Do not imagine that you know God's timetable. Every time that's asked in scripture, it's either ignored or refuted. Trust this king.